0: This is Fearless Beauties, a podcast dedicated to elevating voices of color in the beauty industry. We're talking to estheticians, skin specialists, and business owners to uncover best skin practices, tactical career tips, and ultimately how we can create a better beauty industry together. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your other
1: host, Taylor Phillips.
0: Welcome to the eighth episode of Fearless Beauties. For today's episode, we wanted to focus on something a bit more tactical, how to treat skin of color in the beauty industry.
1: Now, there is no way we could cover all of this in one episode. So today, we're going over the basics to give you an introduction to what Fearless Beauties is built on.
0: Let's get started.
1: I've been thinking about the biggest thing that estheticians need to remember when treating skin of color is that it all starts with the
0: consultation. Mary, what key questions should the esthetician be asking? There are definitely some important steps to remember when treating skin of color, and it starts with communication in the consultation. There's some really important information that the technician needs to find out in order to create a solid treatment plan. And I think all consultations need to include this kind of exchange, not just skin of color, but skin of color especially.
1: Yeah, it's really important to build trust and lay the foundation of effective communication. This is the first time that both the SD and the client are meeting one another, and a consultation is kind of like the first impression, more for the SD, but it's to show that the client's skin is in good hands. As a black woman consumer in the beauty industry, I would expect my esthetician to ask questions in relation to my ethnicity. For instance, in Fearless Beauty's book, it breaks down diseases and disorders like PIH and melasma and cultural practices such as wearing a silk headscarf at night. And these can all have an effect on black skin. So I want whoever I go to to know that my bowel habits, cultural dietary traditions, whether or not I have uterine fibroids, etc they can all contribute to hormonal imbalances, which subsequently affects my skin. And learning all of this information can take some time, but we will be discussing some of the surface level information of all of this in a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, Taylor. The consultation shouldn't be something that gets rushed. It's really your opportunity to make a connection with your client and it really demonstrates your expertise. So your client should be completing an intake or health history form, and then you've got to look it over really carefully. You want to question everything on that intake form. In addition to just performing a visual exam of the skin, palpating the tissue, you want to get a good idea whether your client has thick or thin skin, you want to visualize the pore size, look for any kind of anomalies, like maybe unusual lesions or scars but really asking your client about their allergies. Because a lot of clients I found will list their medication allergies, but they don't think that any other kind of allergies are really that important. And so it's because they just don't realize that a lot of skincare products that we use are plant-based. And if the client is allergic to this plant, their skin isn't gonna react very well if that's what we apply to their skin. So we need to ask about their overall health. We need to look for key systemic health issues like diabetes or autoimmune disorders. Those kinds of things are really going to affect their healing time when you're doing some kind of more aggressive treatment. And it is really important that you ask about their heritage. Does your client have skin of color in their background? Parents, grandparents, -grandparents. great-grandparents? Multi-ethnic heritage is becoming more and more common, and you can't always assume a person's ethnicity is based on their appearance question your client about their Fitzpatrick skin type, but you don't use it as your only treatment decision maker.
1: Yeah, all of this is so very important. And I think it is safe to say that a lot goes into a consultation. It's more than reviewing a piece of paper that the client filled out. It's about analyzing the content and then asking more questions to get a better idea of what a realistic outcome for both the SD and the client is and what treatments will be effective in the long run. I also think asking the client about their stress levels would be important. I know that when you feel stressed, your body produces more of the hormone cortisol. And cortisol causes the production of another hormone that stimulates oil production in the sebaceous glands. This excess oil production can clog the pores and cause acne.
0: Right? Not only stress, but talking to your client about their diet is another area you really need to investigate. Processed foods, foods additives, foods high in sugar, that can cause skin disruptions. Gluten and dairy consumption is important. You know, we've already talked before about how Asian heritage is really sensitive to dairy. So do they consume a lot of soy? Because soy contains plant estrogens that are going to have an effect on the skin. You know, Taylor, another important topic during the consultation is the cultural influences.
1: Definitely. A lot of Black women use silk hair wraps, including myself's, or they use scarves at night for their protective styles, such as braids or locks. And this can cause hairline acne or acneic breakouts from their hair care products. You should really be aware of that cultural habit so you could ask the easy question, do you use a headscarf? And if so, when did you last change it? Another cultural practice involves educating clients with skin of color on the use of sunscreen. Most of them grew up believing that they don't need SPF. And I know a couple episodes back, we talked about the misconceptions of not needing sunscreen for not only black people, but every other ethnicity. I grew up thinking I didn't need sunscreen. And this misunderstanding stemmed from a generational lack of knowledge. So another question that can be asked is, do you wear sunscreen? And if so, how often?
0: Yeah, even we have to dig in and ask questions about their menstrual cycle, find out if they have polycystic ovarian syndrome, that is really vital. Hormones have such a gigantic effect on the skin and understanding that will really make a difference in how you create a treatment plan. So their skin's dryness or oiliness, the acneic breakouts, even facial hair growth is influenced by hormones. Pigmentation disorder, melasma is really hormonal. So estheticians need to understand this, but heat contributes to melasma formation. So knowing their lifestyle, activities like going to hot yoga can just create more pigmentation.
1: Oh yeah, and another important consideration is your client's lifestyle issues. For example, you need to know if your client is a smoker. Smoking limits oxygen to the tissues and it leaves toxins in the cells. And I know we mentioned hormonal influences, but what about the hormonal influences of cannabis?
0: Yeah, that is really a big one right now. You really have to just be bold and dig in, ask your clients about their cannabis ingestion. That just needs to be another point in the consultation because cannabis contains plant hormones that affect testosterone production and that will affect the skin. Taylor, can you think of any other lifestyle considerations that we need to address?
1: Well, we've covered so much already, but I know estheticians need to know how often their clients change their pillowcases or if they wear hats or ball caps. Now for me, I wash my sheets every week, not only because I know it's important for my skin, but because I have a toddler who only God knows what she drops on my sheets. And I would also think the pileup of skincare and drool each night collects on your pillowcases and sheets, which cannot be healthy for your skin. So even how often clients change their razors is important. Those tools that touch the skin can be infected with bacteria. And what I also have learned since working in the beauty industry is that the tool that you use to drop serum on your face do not touch your face with that dropper because although you may think your face is clean, you're spreading bacteria back into that serum bottle, subsequently contaminating all of the serum. So that's so important to know. And also cell phone usage
0: is another example. Oh, talking about cell phones, not only the bacteria on the screen of the cell phone touching the skin, but new studies show that this subtle damage uh, happens to the skin from the HEV light that comes from the cell phone screen. You know, I remember when I had a specific client with really hard to treat pigmentation, and I had done everything I could think of to correct the pigmentation. And it, I had a conversation that really dialed in on her lifestyle. Tell me what you do each day, and found out she was sitting in front of a UV sad light every morning to combat her seasonal affective disorder. The UV light, UV from her sad light, was creating her pigmentation. We were going nowhere. Wow.
1: There is just so much that goes into everything, it seems. (laughs) But this is such great information for Estes to know. I know I deal with PIH, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, so I'm sure asking about how your client heals after an injury to the skin is important. An acne breakout can heal, but the brown spots for me, or which can also appear tan or purple, can last for six months or more.
0: You are absolutely right plus keloid or hypertrophic scarring tendencies is another piece of information that you need to have.
1: Well, let's pivot a minute to talk about your client's budget. An SD can have an amazing treatment plan lined up, but skincare costs, and this should be talked about in the consultation. What if clients have budget concerns? What are your recommendations, Mary?
0: Well, budget is always important. About 80% of the results that your client is gonna see in their skin is gonna be really from their home skincare products that they use on a regular basis. 20% of those changes will come from what you do in a professional treatment. So you've got to get them started on professional skincare first.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of going to the hygienist to get your teeth cleaned, but then never brushing
0: them at home. Exactly, if your client's resisting home care, that's a perfect analogy. Another discussion then is to have your client's expectations for improvements. What is their timelines? What is their commitment? Because they need to be committed to a series of treatments and understand there's going to be a process involved.
1: Yes. Um, One thing I have learned is that results will come, but it takes a whole lot of patience. I've been working on my skin for a good seven to eight months now. And at first I saw a lot of progress, but now it seems like there's no growth, but it's it's only like so minute that if you really don't pay attention, you'll miss it. But moving forward, if estheticians are treating skin of color, what are common characteristics that they need to understand?
0: BIPOC skin has four or five commonalities. A tendency towards greater tool or transepidermal water loss that can create a barrier function consideration. Post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is also a consideration. PIH, or pigmentation due to an injury to the skin, and melasma, pigmentation due to a hormonal disruption. Acne, you know, larger sebaceous glands. You need to be careful when you're performing treatments, and you need to move progressively rather than aggressively. Taylor Robin Sutton from Poise Professional comes to mind.
1: Her focus is on treating acne by taking a holistic approach. So let's hear what she had to say.
2: At some particular point in life, we're gonna probably deal with acne from genetically or any changes that we go through. And it really take a toll on women emotionally. And I focus on that as well with the emotional journey of healing skincare. So it's like, when I think about acne, uh with my background in a beta, it's a holistic approach. Like you have to take care of your diet, you have to take care of your emotional state in order to reach your skin goals. And so, going through that process personally after becoming a mother, that that's what made my emphasis focus on acne, but also from a holistic approach from that. And that's the one thing about acne is just like, yeah, I cannot talk about acne and not talk about like gut health or stress level or, you know, different hormonal levels. So that's why I fell in love with that because it forces you to focus on stuff, especially after having a life transition of being a mother or whatever life transition take place. New job, a pandemic, <laughs> 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 different types of stuff. So, yeah.
1: I remember hearing from Robin some episodes ago. And I really connected with her story, being a mom and going through a lot of emotional changes because of it. But Robin mentions her background in Aveda. Mary, can you tell the audience a little bit more about that philosophy?
0: Well, Aveda is now a multimillion dollar subsidiary of Estee Lauder. But it was started in 1978 by a man named Horace Reckelbacher after he took a trip to India. And Mr. Reckelbacher was introduced to Ayurvedic medicine, which is a holistic healing approach that's been around for over 3,000 years. Aveda was one of the first companies to introduce environmental responsibilities and clean beauty. Its products are natural and organic. It also offers training and education following those same Ayurvedic skin principles.
1: I love that. I think that there is such a huge market for holistic skincare, and it's so important to highlight its success in treating skin just as much as medical grade skincare. Robin's focus on acne happened after her own experience, so it kind of forced her to get educated on the causes of acne. What can you tell us about acne's causes, Mary? Ugh,
0: acne has so many influencers. And oftentimes it's not just one thing that's the cause. There can be several factors that come into play. A lot of acne is due to changing hormone levels. And as women, our hormone levels fluctuate every single day. So there's sex-related hormones, uh, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. They're always kind of struggling to stay in a delicate balance. We move from childhood to puberty, puberty to young adulthood, then childbearing years premenopausal, menopause, and postmenopause. I mean, these are just the major periods or eras in a woman's life, but every day has its own fluctuations and influences due to stress, diet, environment, and genetics. You know, Taylor, I know you've really struggled with acne. What have you found? Well, for me,
1: I've been battling with acne since I received my lovely period at the age of nine. It was wild and my face just blew up. So at that time, proactive was a huge deal. So my mom purchased that for me and it really got my skin under control for a good five to six years, I would say. But it wasn't until my sophomore year of high school that I said, you know what? I'm done using Proactive. It was bleaching all my clothes because of the peroxide. And I knew that there were so many other products out there that could give me great results. So Mary, I kid you not, my skin blew up so bad that people at school were like, Taylor, what happened to your skin? And I tried everything drugstore in the book after that. I refused to go back to Proactive. So it took me, I would say, five years after that to get my skin to where I didn't need to wear makeup and I would say that was 2016 but I don't know what happened changes in my lifestyle I guess Um, my skin just got bad again and hormonal changes stress definitely and ever since I've been struggling to get my skin back to looking like it did four years ago So I say all this to say this, I now realize that I was always focused on finding quick ways to fix my skin, but I never stopped to think about what was really causing those breakouts. So Mary, why do most people focus on treatments of the skin rather than looking at the larger picture?
0: Ah, such a good question. I think it's because practitioners, they learn the Western medicine approach in school, which is treat the symptoms rather than really looking for the cause you combat oiliness by using a product that is drying. But unfortunately, then that dryness will cause a barrier function problem, which then causes sensitized skin, which causes inflammation, or you get a rebound oiliness problem and you get this vicious cycle going. I think a holistic approach is a lot more sensible because we're learning so much now about how the body systems and our skin function are so interconnected.
1: Yeah, I don't think it is beneficial to use a drying product to take away all of the oil because we need oil, right? So since Robin takes such a holistic approach with her clients, how does she effectively and organically get that information from them?
0: Well, like we've talked about, it all starts with her initial consultation.
2: So with the consultation, well, besides the holistic, um, I do tell them what their skin type is, obviously, and then what is their grade of acne. So they are educated about that. And then let them know if you have inflamed or the non-inflamed acne. Once we have the inflamed or non-inflamed acne, I definitely tell my clients to we have to have a progressive approach and not an aggressive approach because if it's too aggressive as we know what uh, women of color with melanin we can actually do more damage to that if it's too aggressive and cause more hyperpigmentation so if you go through an acne program with me i started you all with a very gentle cleanser we start off with a gentle cleanser and we'll start off with a mandelic We'll start off with that. And when we don't use it every day. We'll use it every other day in the morning time. And then we'll start off with a cramped peptide moisturizer and then SPF with that. But the cleanser and the toner is very um, gentle with that. So as I go through their virtual consultation, I like to see the formation of the acne. Like where is it located? jawline or cheek line and that area of forehead. And we talk about different areas forehead, we talk about hair care, talk about sugar intake if it's on the jawline, and um, and we definitely talk about what what is their current skincare products, because sometimes as you know, when we use acne products, it can dry our skin out, and then it can cause more oil that causes more breakouts, so I definitely educate them about ingredients as well, as much as possible, so they are aware of everything with that, and we just, yeah, I just break it down with their Fitzpatrick's, I break it down with their acne class is, and I break down to their skin type, and then I provide the acne products that I recommend with them. And I mainly focus on products with Mandelic, uh, products with lactate that's in there, all the hyperpigmentation, PIH inhibitors. If we try to um, normalize the sebum control without being drying, and that's why it goes back to the internal, we have to make sure that we're hydrated inside too, because I notice that the, the skin is very sensitive too. Uh, I noticed with myself and with other clients that and that's why it's more progressive than aggressive, because Mm -hmm. even if we get there's different percentage of the mandelic acid and the uh, lactate, some clients cannot tolerate like an 8% mandelic. They can only tolerate a 5%. So we have to be very conscientious of the sensitivity level as well. I notice with my clients, and especially around the mouth area, this is really where they're sensitive at, and that'd be the first area to let them know that that product is a little bit too too strong for them. I did notice that um, that mouth area where mm-hmm. uh, it's more, more more sensitive with that. So my uh, I focus a lot on the mandelic. I focus. I, I don't really use glycolic, and the reason why I learned from another. Um, an acne um, esthetician and um, she's one of my mentors as well. And Elise told me this as well. She was like, she don't like glycolics." So I did more research, but it's too dry into the skin and it really affects the cell in a negative way. And it really has the potential to irritate women of color skin. And I have noticed that, um, in my, when I use like a glycolic peel, it's too drying and it's too irritating and it actually causes me more, uh, hyperpigmentation. I do use retinol, um, vitamin A. I typically start at a low dosage, uh, with that. But I will try, uh, before I get to retinol, I give clients the Mandelic, then I transition to a lactate and then we'll get to a retinol. Um, so we can build them up with that.
0: Taylor, what are your thoughts about Robin's approach to her consultations?
1: Well, I would first wanna say that I learned a lot. I was really interested in how she conducts her consultations. I like how she is so informative. She teaches her clients so that when they are treating their skin at home, they know exactly why these products are being used for their skin. And with those teachings, I believe it makes her clients feel more comfortable knowing she took time to really analyze their skin and find out what's best for their lifestyle. Robin mentioned diet and specifically sugar as a driver of acne. Can you expand on that, Mary? What is it about sugar that can cause acne?
0: Well, sugar and foods that are high in the glycemic index, meaning that food that converts to glucose really quickly will elevate our blood sugar really quickly. And our body is really meant to do that, right? To give us a boost of energy. But too much sugar in our diet will kick our pancreas into dumping insulin into our bloodstream to lower those glucose levels. That will cause a giant burst of inflammation throughout our entire body. And then that burst of inflammation means our sebaceous glands get a boost of energy to produce more sebum. And that leads to more acne, Interesting, wow. So I think it's so mind blowing to
1: learn how much information and knowledge goes into being an esthetician. For instance, learning what treatments are right for your skin type or even your ethnicity. Chemical peels are performed differently on South Asian clients than with clients of African descent, for example. And speaking of chemical peels, Mary, can you give us a lesson on the right kind of acids to use in chemical peels when the SD is working on skin of color?
0: Oof, all right, but I could talk for days on this. First, I do want to put in a little plug for Alish Pierce, askalish.com. She is the most knowledgeable person I know on chemical peels and treating skin of color. She is truly an absolute guru in this industry. So check her out. But, you know, chemical peels could be a three-day course. The most important facts, I think, are molecule size, um, hydrophilic versus lipophilic, and whether the acid has the ability of, to affect tyrosinase activity. So tyrosinase is the enzyme that stimulates melanin activity. Glycolic acid is the smallest molecule in the acid family that we use on the skin. So by being the smallest, it can penetrate the deepest. It can like work its way down uh, through the interstitial spaces in the skin cells. Glycolic acid usually comes from citrus fruits or beet sugar. And then, for example, mandelic acid is a larger molecule. It has an action that will inhibit tyrosinase. So it's a really good acid to treat superficial pigmentation because it's not going to go too deep, but it's going to block melanin production. But mandelic acid comes from bitter almonds. And it's a great example why you would need to know about your client's allergies, because if a client has a nut allergy, you wouldn't want to use mandelic acid on their skin. Mandelic and glycolic acids are both hydrophilic, meaning they're attracted to the water in the skin. So they'll break down the bonds of desmosomes or the glue that's holding the dead skin cells together, and that allows the skin cells to shed. A salicylic acid, which comes from willow bark, is lipophilic. It's attracted to the lipids or the oils, and it will break down or digest the sebum in the pores. Using chemical peels on skin of color, requires really specific protocols and a treatment plan that's progressive rather than aggressive. You're gonna always do a series of peels, and as your client's skin gets conditioned, then you can increase your peel strength or percentage, or you can change to a smaller molecule size that will go a little bit deeper, and that will influence the outcome. I know we discuss peels in our Fearless Beauties book, and I know Alish has an online chemical peel certification that's really, really valuable.
1: Well, I think it's safe to say that chemical peels are a very popular procedure. And most importantly, it's a useful tool to include in a full treatment plan. It was just yesterday, I think, I posted on Fearless Beauty's Instagram on how to perform chemical peels on South Asian skin, and it was getting such great feedback because SDs want to be knowledgeable about these things. Like we have said many times, learning how to treat skin of color should be included in common aesthetic curricula and not something you should have to seek further education for. And that is what Fearless Beauties is striving to do, normalize multicultural education.
0: Well, Robin had some really incredible insights on how to handle consultations and recommendations of products for skin of color, but it made me think of the lack of awareness that exists about procedures for BIPOC skin, including doing some specialized treatments.
1: Yeah, I remember when you chatted with Lenice Wilson. Her services, for example, are so specialized for people with hair loss, but there's such a lack of knowledge about the procedures she uses.
3: So this is a treatment or procedure that came out of Europe. Um, it's been something that um, it has been used to create hairlines or to give the illusion of a very... Uh, low buzz cut for men and women that are suffering from alopecia. It does involve micro needles or nano needles that are used to recreate the look of the hair follicle. And there's been some huge um, advances in the technique over the last seven years. I feel that there's a very small percentage of the hair loss population or community that even realize that this particular technique is available to them. Um, it, regardless, and I'm assuming that it's going to be a little less known for people who don't have a lot of access to the information, um, or don't know exactly what to look for because they're looking, they're not the, I think the first line of defense is, um, hair transplants and things of that nature. While this particular service is non-invasive, there's little to no recovery time whatsoever. And it's a fraction of the cost. So I think what we need to do is bring more awareness in all of our communities, especially for those that may be suffering from hair loss because of medical reasons, chemotherapy, radiation, things of that nature. And so we just need to really work on marketing this particular treatment to people so that they have more awareness.
0: I really enjoyed my conversation with Lenise Taylor, but why do you think there's such a lack of awareness around niche treatments like this? Because it's
1: not common. I mean, this is the first time I have heard of this. And now that I know this info, one of my aunts and one of my grandmothers has significant hair loss like really significant and i do not think they know any of this information as black women a part of a woman's beauty is her hair and when they lose their hair there is some shame that is involved just like barrenness in a woman it's not your fault but because you can't have children a woman is shamed or chooses to hide they remain in the closet so I would conclude that there is a lack of awareness because women are too ashamed to get the help. Subsequently, not bringing enough awareness to
0: wonderful treatments like what Lenice does. After talking with Lanise, I had to do a little research to find out about hair loss. I know black women can have traction alopecia, which is hair loss due to heat or chemicals or tight hair braiding styles. But black women also suffer more from vitamin D deficiency, which can cause hair loss statistics that i saw said that almost 50 percent of black women have some type of alopecia at some time in their life and i think it really isn't discussed because i agree there is societal shame involved and i think that stems back to the eurocentric beauty ideals that black women aren't as beautiful with just natural hair taylor i'm really not the person to be talking about this with any kind of authority so what are your thoughts
1: No, Mary, you are 100% correct, but I will add that not only tight braids, but also sew ins or extensions, using hair glue to secure your wigs, or just simply not allowing your hair to breathe between relaxers and extensions, all of that can cause significant hair loss. So, since there are so many options for hair, Black women are not learning to care for their natural hair. In the past, Black hair, although it was with the use of chemicals, a woman's hair was highlighted like Afros or even with relaxers. But now women do not even show their hair. Having strong natural hair is no longer required. Therefore, we don't take care of it because we have other options. So I believe that for some black women, and I am emphasizing some, they feel that long straight hair only accomplished by weave is more sophisticated or put together and even more manageable than natural hair. Longer and straighter hair is associated with being more beautiful, which is Eurocentric ideals of beauty. Therefore, they will fit better into society. So instead of hiding under wigs or extensions or whatever makes our hair straighter, it's important to normalize embracing our African roots by flaunting that natural look without feeling like it's too black for society to handle. Even the woman who chooses to rock black hairstyles, there are wigs for that too. So you can literally get a wig that looks like a natural Afro.
0: You know, I think Lenice's treatment really goes to show that there's innovative ways of treating specialized needs in the beauty industry. But you know, now what? what do we do with the pandemic?
1: Well, with Rona out there, I think that marketing is more important than ever. So someone out there needs what you're bringing to the table. It's all about finding creative ways to bring more awareness of treatments to all communities so they know it's available. So unfortunately, with this pandemic, we can't perform most treatments. And because of that, Mary, are consumers even going to want the same things?
0: Well, Tracy Donnelly had some really interesting thoughts here.
4: Well, I think we've seen trends in just what consumers are wanting as far as the type of treatments and the type of um, products that they're looking for now. I think that they're getting back to more of a natural approach and even the appearance as well as the type of skincare that they're looking for. You know, I think there was a trend out there that said that skincare products are growing by 13%. And while makeup is only growing by 1%. So I thought that was really interesting, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's going to be one change. But I think, you know, going back to the way that we communicate with our clients will still resonate even after the pandemic is over. I think that, you know, our clients are going to feel closer to us because of this, the ones that have, we've maintained, you know, communication. That relationship.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Exactly. Yep. 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 I think that's going to be a big part of it. And I just really think that hopefully clients out there will really understand that you can't just come in for a facial, you know, once every other month and see results because they weren't able to do that. Right. In some yes. cases. And they will understand the importance of a regimen, pers- you know, recommended by their professional skincare provider.
0: Taylor, do you agree with Tracy that the pandemic has changed people's perception of beauty and self-care? Oh yeah, 100%. More
1: people are learning to embrace their natural beauty because they are forced to. So especially in the beginning, where we were all quarantining, no one had anywhere to go. So we couldn't get our nails, our hair, our skin done. So I believe that we had to make it work. So relying on our home skincare routine, purchasing gel nail kits or press on nails, or even doing our own hair. I think that that was a blessing in disguise, causing people to realize their natural beauty. And I think that's why there are more people purchasing skincare products opposed to makeup. For me, I haven't gotten my hair or nails done since February. I used to hate my natural nails, but now I love them. And because I used to get my hair done every month or so, like braids, I always have braids, I now am forced to really take care of my natural hair because I am all I have. So the pandemic has forced us all to slow down and take care of ourselves. And I really try to look at the bright side of this pandemic. And that is one of the things I realized. We all have the time to really slow down and reflect now, to think and just learn to love ourselves for who we are and appreciate our loved ones.
0: Well, I think there's already a swing towards a simpler lifestyle. People are working from home, yoga pants. Right? I think it's going to be reflected in simpler, more natural skincare products. And I think the focus is going to be on treating mask knee, how to treat it. And then we're going to also shift to a focus on the eyes. As human beings, we really need to make that contact. Masks have limited our communication. So we need to communicate more with our eyes. Brows, brow laminations, really popular. Lashes, lash lifts, tints lash extensions, things that are going to bring attention to our eyes.
1: Yeah, I was just telling my mom the other day, if I could get one thing done, it would be my eyebrows right now because they're getting a little fuzzy. And since that is all that shows underneath my mask, other other than my lashes, of course, when I go out, I still want to look my best, especially since I don't go out very often anymore. But then I think about, hmm, they're going to be so close to my face if I get my eyebrows done. So I may just have to rock the unibrow for a while. (laughs) Safety is my number one priority, especially with having Lauren to take care of.
0: Well, another interesting thing that Tracy and I talked about was the impact of the pandemic and how clients view their own safety.
4: People are, their eyes are open a little bit more to just our overall personal risk as human beings. And I think professional liability insurance and protecting yourself and your clients is going to resonate and continue to resonate a little bit more too, just because, you know, we're feeling eyes wide open and maybe a little bit more vulnerable too, you know, with everything going on. So, yeah, I think PPE, just things to protect us, I think are are really going to continue on. Well, and then just even too, depending on the treatments you can perform. I mean, that's been one of the really, um, you know, touchy issues that we've had a lot of communication with. So our government relations team has had to go state by state on some cases to really talk to the different Cosmo boards to say, hey, help a person out here. You're saying that in order to do a treatment, both people must be wearing masks. Well, that really limits the treatments that an esthetician can do. I mean, you're talking about, you know, brows and body, you know, that's about it. And so um, we've been really trying to work with them and educating the different uh, states and even comes down to counties on some, in some states where it depends yes. on what the restrictions are. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been quite the challenge for COVID.
1: Limiting to just the brows and body, I'm sure, has taken a huge toll on estes. And although there are so many strategic sanitation practices going on in spas, Mary, how can estheticians make people feel comfortable
0: coming back in for treatments after this pandemic? I think it's going to involve a lot of reinforcement, communicating with our clients about sanitation and infection control standards, Posting on social media, posting your policy on your website, in your voicemail messages, being really diligent and consistent in your messaging. And when your client comes in, taking their temperature, asking them questions about their exposure, and then purposefully letting them see you wash your hands, wear a mask and disinfect I think taking um, some online infection control certification classes, posting your certificate where your clients can see it. You know, I know here at the school, I've just made a huge investment in those acrylic box things uh, that fit over people's faces. It's like bigger than a bread box. Um but it adds one more layer of protection when you're working on someone's face. It's acrylic box that it's got an opening so the client's head is inside the box and then there's little hand holes where the technician's hands can go into the box to perform the treatments. And six months ago, when I first saw them, estheticians were saying, no way, I'll never use these. But the reality is we need to provide the safest environment possible for our clients and for our staff.
1: Yeah, Mary, I think you hit the nail on the head with the how-tos on providing a safe environment for both the SD and the clients. And I know on Spectrum's Instagram, it has been posted a few times, I think, that you're not opening services up to the public yet. And I think that's smart. So I think you are being very meticulous to not harm you, your staff, students, and any potential clients. What do you think estheticians need to remember in regards to sanitation practices that may have been
0: overlooked before? I think estheticians and skincare professionals have always been really conscientious of infection control standards, but COVID has reinforced sanitizing every surface, taking the extra time to thoroughly wipe down the surfaces that could have been missed before. I know we have someone, she wipes down the hand railings, she wipes down the doorknobs, she wipes down the light, you know, the light switches, turning those on and off, wearing masks and gloves with every treatment. Because I know when I first got into aesthetics, gloves weren't always worn. Now I think gloves are a must.
1: Oh yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I went to Target yesterday and Um, I saw people wearing gloves in the stores. So I never even thought about that. And I'm like, now let me go purchase some gloves because I don't want to be touching anything at this point. But Tracy mentioned personal liability insurance. Why was this something that may not have been at the forefront of Estee's minds
0: prior to COVID? Well, no one really intends on having a negative reaction with the client. No one thinks the client's going to sue them. But if your client has a skin reaction that turns into cellulitis, that turns into an infection, that requires a medical intervention, you need liability insurance. It shouldn't even be a question. And clients are now hyper aware of their own vulnerability and they wanna make sure that they're putting themselves in situations where they're gonna stay healthy. I had a student withdraw because she wanted me to guarantee that she wouldn't get COVID.
1: Well, that's interesting, cause I think it's safe to say that there are no guarantees of safety with COVID anymore. But Mary, what lessons can Estes take away from this pandemic to start reshaping the way they're treating their clients?
0: Ugh. Wow, Taylor, that's another big question. And I have so many answers. Um, you know, I was reading about a silver lining to this pandemic. Some people might not have experienced a silver lining yet, but there are some. Because first, just a true and solid gratefulness for the clients that have been loyal during these times of quarantine and having limited social contact. Secondly, a commitment to increase sanitation and infection control. And thirdly, a fresh perspective about providing treatments, an opportunity to dial in and niche a commitment to education, and a focus on more solid consultations. Taylor, can you think of anything else?
1: Well, I think building a solid relationship of trust is important. With virtual consultations, or even with the spas that are open and taking clients regularly, check in on your clients and make them feel as comfortable as possible with your sanitation requirements. After listening to Robin, Lanice, and Tracy, I feel like I've heard three very different perspectives on the skincare industry. One, differences between skin of color when treating acne and the considerations that should be taken into account when creating a treatment plan. Two, the need for awareness of niche treatments in all communities. And three, the shift in thinking that consumers have had due to the pandemic and the changes that estheticians will need to make.
0: Well, I think there are some key takeaways from this episode for sure. The communication during the consultation is vital to a successful treatment, asking all the questions. Another key takeaway is that skin of color has unique characteristics beyond just melanin. Hyperpigmentation issues, acne, and tool are a commonality. Make skincare treatment plans with those things in mind. Chemical peels are great treatment options, but the esthetician has to have a solid chemical peel training to know which acid to use and to make the right call in treating progressively rather than aggressively. And niche specialties like micropigmentation can fill an important need. I would love to find out more about this treatment. Well, and then keeping infection control protocols in the forefront, being proactive to keep clients and ourselves safe. Absolutely. I think you hit all of the points from
1: this episode, Mary. So I guess I can end by saying that my key takeaway was that it's important to educate clients on how to treat their skin at home and continue to market safety regulations. Because let's be honest, this is our new normal.
0: Thank you for listening to Fearless Beauties, a show dedicated to elevating voices of color in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your other host, Taylor Phillip.
1: Until next time, keep educating yourself. Remember to stay open and be fearless in the pursuit of creating a better, more inclusive world.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Special thanks to my co-host, Taylor, and our producers at Quill, Inc.